Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. And our text this morning is, I've begun this new series in John, is John 1, 6 through 13. And let's just begin by reading this passage of Scripture together, John 1, beginning in verse 6. And this is the word of the Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. That's the reading of his word, and let me ask his blessing upon it. Father, as we study your word, as we have heard it read, and as we now reflect upon what it means and how it applies to our life, we pray for the working of your spirit within our souls, that you would illumine our hearts to understand and grasp what your word teaches and soften our hearts to receive it and to apply it in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When the light is suddenly turned on in a dark room, it elicits different responses. So a person walking into the room is pleased because they can see where they're going. The bugs, however, are sent scurrying to find a dark corner to hide in or a crack in the wall to escape through. And the same is true in some ways when the sun begins to rise upon the earth and the darkness of night gives way to the light of a new day. The people who were sleeping are grateful for the warmth and the beauty of the sunshine. But to the people who were taking advantage of the darkness to carry out evil deeds, the light of a new day brings shame and disappointment. Last week we saw how John described Jesus as a life-giving light there in verses 4 through 5. Today, we're going to see in verses 6 through 13 how different people responded to his light when he entered into a darkened world. Before we dive into the text, though, let's just remember a few things about the opening section of this book. The first 18 verses of the book are often called the prologue to John's account of the gospel. They're designed to prepare you to read the rest of the book by introducing you to some of its major themes. The prologue is somewhat parallel to the birth narratives that we have in Matthew and in Luke's account of the gospel because it speaks to the origins of the man, Jesus. But whereas Matthew and Luke begin with Jesus' entrance into the world, John's prologue takes us back to Jesus' presence at the beginning of the world as the eternal divine word 
through whom all things were made. Jesus' entrance into the world isn't described until verse 14, but his presence in the world is first mentioned right in the middle of our text in verse 10. Now, with that brief review out of the way, let's dive in to verses 6 through 13. So what we see is that before talking about Jesus' presence in the world, John introduced us to a man who prepared the way for his coming. So in verses 6 through 8, he tells us about a man named John who bore witness to the light. So we're introduced to him in verse 6. If you look at your Bibles, there it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now we've been reading about a figure starting in verse 1 who is the eternal divine word. But here the author introduces us now to a man who is a mere man. He's not an ordinary man, though, because the author tells us that he too was sent from God. Now that doesn't mean that this man existed before he was born, but rather that God had given him a mission in life. Indeed, when the author reveals that his name was John, that is, we know John the Baptist, a savvy reader might actually discern that the description of him as sent from God might actually have Old Testament roots. Because one of the texts that predicts John the Baptist's coming is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The other three Gospels explicitly tell us that John the Baptist was this messenger whom the Lord sent to prepare the way for his coming in the person of the Messiah. Now, one of the ways that John prepared the way for Jesus' arrival was by calling the people of Israel to repentance and then baptizing them as a sign that they had received the forgiveness of sins. That's why he's called John the Baptist. But what we see here in verses 7-8 through is that the author of this gospel focused on a different aspect of John's ministry. He pointed out that John also prepared the way for the Messiah's coming by bearing witness to him. So, as it says... He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, the light, of course, is the eternal divine word described in verses 1 through 3. Later, John would finally identify the word as Jesus Christ and the only begotten Son of God. That's in verses 17 through 18. Here, the author tells us that John the Baptist came as a witness to the light, Jesus Christ. He testified about him publicly, in other words. In this sense, John the Baptist was a prophet. God had given him a special mission to go before the Messiah, announcing his arrival in the public square telling the world about him. 
Later, the author would expand on what John's testimony consisted of. So, for instance, John told the people that Jesus was the Lord, that is, Yahweh, come into the world, in chapter 1, verse 23. He said that he was not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals, in chapter 1, verse 27. He said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, chapter 1, verse 29. He said that Jesus ranked before him because he existed before him, chapter 1, verse 30. He said that the Holy Spirit had come and rested upon Jesus and that Jesus would baptize others with the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. He said that Jesus was the Son of God, chapter 1, verse 34. The Christ, chapter 3, verse 38. And finally, the bridegroom of God's people, chapter 3, verse 29. Now, that's pretty lofty stuff. It acknowledges both Jesus' divine glory and his role as the human Messiah. We should also notice the purpose of John's witness. It's stated right there in verse 7. Look again, it says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. In other words, the reason why John said all these things about Jesus was so that everyone who heard might come to believe in Jesus. Now we have to pause and just reflect for a moment on what is said here. John the Baptist, of course, we know, had a unique role in redemptive history. He was the one who was given the great privilege of actually preparing the way for the Messiah and then announcing that he'd come. It's like all the other prophets were saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and John got to say, he's here. But there's also a sense in which John's unique role does reflect a role that every Christian is given. He bore public witness to Jesus so that people might believe in him. And then after his resurrection, we know that Jesus told his disciples to do the very same thing on a much wider scale, right? I think of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where the risen Jesus, just before ascending into heaven, told his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, I think that last line, end to the end of the earth, indicates that this commission that he had given would be carried out not just by his original disciples who were standing there, but by the church as a whole in successive generations. In other words, Christ has commissioned the church in every generation to, like John the Baptist, bear public witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth. And while it doesn't say this explicitly in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the implied purpose of the church's witness, just like John's, is so that everyone who hears might believe in Jesus. 
So to put it another way, the witness of John was like a foretaste to the Great Commission, which would be carried out by the church and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this means that while we will not all be specially gifted and called to preach the gospel like John the Baptist was, we all do, as Christians, have a part to play in bearing public witness to Jesus Christ. It's what the risen Jesus has told us to do until he returns. So, you children who are believers, be willing to tell your friends about Jesus so that they might believe in him too. You men, be willing to tell your co-workers about Jesus so that they might believe in him too. You women who are staying at home and raising children, be willing to tell not only your children about Jesus, but perhaps other moms who you interact with on a daily basis so that they might believe in him too. And what about your family members and your neighbors who don't believe? Will you tell them too? This is our commission from Jesus. You will be my witnesses. We must testify to the world, to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, so that others might believe in him too. And of course, it can't stop here in Reading, because Jesus has sent his church to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. So, Whether we go ourselves or whether we support others who do, we must participate in the task of bearing witness to Christ throughout the wide earth so that people of every tongue and tribe and nation of the world might believe in him. Use a picture. That small flame that was first lit by John the Baptist when he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold! The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, must be now transferred to new torches and taken out into the dark corners of the earth so that fire might spread. Well, after introducing us to a man named John, who bore witness to the light, the author turned his attention to the light itself in verse 9. And there he tells us that Jesus is the true light who shines for everyone in the world. You might have noticed that verse 8. If you look back at verse 8, it seems to be concerned to distinguish between John and the light, John and Jesus. Because it says, he, John, was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. Now, we're not exactly sure why the author, who is also John, the apostle, why he did this. He seemed to have been somewhat concerned that perhaps some of his readers thought that John the Baptist was the ultimate revelation. And it is true, when you think about it, when you read the book of Acts, you come upon people like Apollos, for instance, or that small group that Paul met outside the city of Ephesus who had been baptized by John, but They hadn't been fully instructed in who Jesus was. Perhaps the author of the book had such people in mind when he wrote verse 9. He, John, is not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. But whatever the case, it was that concern which then leads into verse 10 where he called Jesus the true light. Now that phrase, the true light, it could mean that Jesus is the genuine light over against 
false or counterfeit lights, you know, like false teachers such as the Pharisees. Or it could mean that he is the true light, as in the ultimate light, God's full and final revelation. Or it could mean that John perhaps had both of those ideas in mind when he called Jesus the true light. They're certainly both true. But then, after identifying Jesus as the true light, the author went on to say that he gives light to everyone. There's some debate about what that means. I think we get a clue, though, from the next line, which says that Jesus, the true light, was coming into the world. In other words, the author seems to be saying that when Jesus entered into the world as a man, he became a source of objective revelation, a light from God to the world. As he would put it just a few verses later, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And this revelation from God, And the word become flesh, the light entered into the world, was made available to all, men and women, without distinction. Now, it can't mean that everyone in the world saw the revelation that he provided, let alone believed in him, because we know that's not the case. But it seems to mean that the light of Christ, that is, the truth about him which provides eternal life, It wasn't restricted from anyone. It was made available to all without distinction. It's there, shining for all to see. Men, women, Pharisees and tax collectors, priests and demoniacs, even Jews and Gentiles. Let's take a moment just to reflect upon what we can learn from verse 9 before we move on to the heart of the text. First, reminded that Jesus is the true light. The true revelation of God, the word of God, over against any counterfeits, false lights. So the other religions of the world are man-made. And while not everything they claim is necessarily false, yet they are ultimately false religions and will lead you astray into darkness, which leads to destruction. Still less, of course, will... The empty philosophies of men like secular humanism or New Age mysticism and on and on, will they lead you into truth? They too are darkness. Jesus alone is the true light. Only by coming to his light and believing in him will you find eternal life. Second, we're reminded in verse 9 that Jesus is the true light also in the sense that he is God's ultimate self-disclosure. You know, Islam affirms that Jesus is a true prophet, but that the ultimate revelation comes through Muhammad. This is one of many reasons why Islam cannot be true. That contradicts what the New Testament, which, by the way, was written many centuries before the Quran, testifies about Jesus. He is the true light. You know, even Orthodox Judaism, which would affirm the Old Testament scriptures, fails because It refuses to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah and thus misses God's full and final revelation. Only by coming to Jesus, the true light, the ultimate light, 
Well, you will hear everything God has to say to mankind. As Jesus told the Jews, you remember John 5, 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Third, we're reminded in verse 9 that Jesus is the true light who gives light to everyone. Jesus was always inviting all to come to him. His light was not discriminate based upon anything in us. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, sinners all are welcome to come into his light to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life through him. I think of how John would so memorably say it later in John three sixteen through 18. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Poor, wretched sinner. Even though you've broken God's commands and merited his righteous judgment, if you will only come to Jesus, repenting of your wicked ways, trusting in his mercy, you will find him to be a willing Savior who will Pay off all your debts of sin through his death on the cross. And secure for you eternal life through his resurrection. So come to him. Come to him even today. Finally, after speaking of Jesus as the true light who shines for everyone in the world, in verse 9, the author, John, speaks of how different people responded to him. Verses 10 through 13. So first, John tells us the shocking truth about how so many people rejected Jesus when he came. So John begins by describing this rejection in the broadest terms. So look at verse 10. There he says, He was in the world, the light. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now remember, the he, verse 10, is the light of verses 4 through 9, and the word of verses 1 through 3. It's all the same person. They're descriptions of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's revealed finally down in verses 17 through 18. Let's remember what John said of Jesus as the word in verses 1 through 3. He said, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, the man, Jesus Christ, existed before creation as God in the beginning. And all things were made through him. In this sense, do you see, it is proper to say that Jesus is the creator of the universe. That's what John's indicating. In our text, verse 10, John then built upon that truth, which he'd already articulated, and made two absolutely shocking points. First, he said that the creator 
entered into his own creation. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Now, I know that there's a sense in which God, as omnipresent, has always been present everywhere in his world, but that's not what's being said here. What's being said here is that the word who was God for eternity past, in the beginning created all things, and then 2,000 years ago, he united himself to a true and full human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary and was born into the world as a man, Jesus Christ. He was still fully God, but he was now also fully man. It boggles the mind to think about that, but it's clearly what John is saying. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. It's the first shocking point. But it doesn't stop there. He made a second shocking point in the next part of the verse. He said, yet the world did not know him. The creator entered into his own creation as the man, Jesus, And the world of men whom he had made didn't recognize him for who he was. And we know why. He was born to the wife of a poor carpenter's son in a stable in a small village called Bethlehem. And aside from a few shepherds and some magi from the east, no one beside his parents even knew that it had happened. He grew up in another tiny village of ill repute, apparently, named Nazareth in the northern region of Galilee in Israel, far away from Jerusalem in the hub of politics in that part of the world. For 30 years, he lived a devout, yes, but normal human life as a carpenter's son, so that later on, his own brothers and and the people of his hometown were caught off guard by his ministry And struggled with the lofty claims that people were making about him. Isn't this Jesus, the carpenter's son? Remember the ancient prophet Isaiah had predicted of him? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Here was the person who in his divine nature had existed for all eternity as God, who had created the universe in the beginning and was still upholding the universe every moment by his almighty power as God. And yet the people who owed their very existence to him did not worship him as he deserved, treated him as any other human being because that's who they perceived him to be. As the apostle put it, he was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It's a shocking truth to consider. But then John narrowed the lens down a bit. And he considered the human response to Jesus from a narrower perspective. Verse 11, he said, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here we must remember the more specific identity of Jesus that's revealed in verse 17, where John calls him Jesus Christ. In other words, just like John the Baptist, Jesus too was sent from God, 
with a very specific mission to accomplish in the world. He came as the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, whose coming had been foretold throughout the Old Testament scriptures, whose mission was to fulfill the promises of redemption and judgment delivered to Israel by the prophets. So when John said of Jesus, he came to his own, well, he meant that Jesus came as an Israelite to the nation of Israel as their promised Messiah, their ultimate Davidic king who would, as the angel Gabriel told the Virgin Mary, reign over the house of Jacob forever. His mission was, as Paul would put it later in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first. They were the natural branches of God's vineyard long before the Gentiles were grafted in. And yet, the shocking point that John makes about Jesus here in verse 11 is that his own people did not receive him. So many centuries of waiting Israel, for their Messiah, God had sent the promised Messiah to Israel and they did not accept him for who he was. Indeed, I think that phrase, did not receive him, it implies rejection. And this is, in fact, what happened. The Jews rejected their own Messiah. At long last... Yahweh had come into the world as a man to save his old covenant bride. And they did not believe him, but they rejected him as an evil imposter. He came speaking the truth. They accused him of lying. He lived a perfectly righteous life. They accused him of being evil. He came performing miraculous signs. They said he did so by the power of the devil. He came claiming to be the divine Messiah. They accused him of blasphemy and sought to put him to death as one under God's curse. You know how true the prophet Isaiah had spoken when he described the coming Messiah, saying he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In fact, perhaps those very words were in the mind of the Apostle John when he said in our text, He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Now, between those two statements, in verses 10 and 11, there is just this terrible irony. The Creator entered into his own creation as a man, Jesus Christ, and was not recognized by the people he created. The long-awaited Messiah came to his covenant people to save them as was promised and was not received by them, though he was a husband to them. Shocking truths. It really is beyond our full comprehension, isn't it? But lest we think that John is saying that Jesus was universally rejected by mankind, he does clarify in verses 12 and 13. That is not the case. For he said, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As we know from the rest of the New Testament, there were some who did receive Jesus when he came into the world. Now, John went on to say that receiving included believing in his name. And together, those ideas, receiving Jesus, believing in his name, they seem to indicate believing in Jesus, receiving him in a personal way, opening your heart to him, trusting him as Savior, following him as Lord. This is at least what you see the disciples actually do with respect to Jesus in the remainder of the book. And then John went on to describe two blessings which those who receive Jesus in this way possess from God. First, they are given, quote, the right to become children of God. Now that is startling in the extreme if we weren't so used to it because it describes a relationship with God that is unthinkably intimate. Could it be true that those who believe in Jesus are brought right into the very family of God? And given the status of being his sons and daughters, are they allowed to call him their own father? To possess the tender love, the generous provision, the perfect protection, the unbreakable commitment that comes with that kind of relationship? Well, that's precisely what John says here. Elsewhere, this same author, in his first letter, 1 John, expressed his wonder over this truth. Remember he said, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. But that's not all. Because just as children are born into earthly families, well, so those who believe in Jesus, it says, are born into the family of God. Now, of course, that's not a physical birth because he says, not of blood. Nor is it the result of the decision or the desire of human parents. As he says, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Instead, The birth by which those who believe in Jesus Christ enter into the family of God, John says, it is a birth that is of God. You know, later in the book, he clarifies about this birth, right? In chapter 3, when he's speaking to the Pharisee, Nicodemus, and he tells him that he must be born again. And he says that just as the wind blows wherever it wishes, So the Holy Spirit grants this second birth, this new spiritual life to whomever he wishes. Paul described it as a spiritual resurrection. We were dead. He made us alive. And as a new creation, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. These are all in Ephesians 2. And we know that when Paul describes this new birth, this new creation, this spiritual resurrection, in Paul's mind, it results in not only our guilt being removed, but in a wicked sinner being inwardly transformed 
to walk in love for God, to love to obey His commands. Now, we should be careful how we read these verses. You know, it is tempting to interpret these verses as establishing a causal connection between believing in Jesus and being born into the family of God. First you believe and then you're born again. But actually, if you look closely at the text, it doesn't actually say that. D.A. Carson, a very well-known scholar, especially of John, he puts it this way. He says, these verses refrain from spelling out the connection between faith and new birth. Those who receive the word are identical with those who believe in his name, and they are identical with those who are born of God. In other words, they are, he's describing concurrent blessings, concurrent events. And this is important because to say that one believes in Jesus and then receives new spiritual life, you see, that would indicate that on your own, apart from the life that the Spirit gives to our souls, we could believe. But Paul says we're dead in sin, apart from Christ. We need to be regenerated before we can believe. Faith is a gift. This is why Jesus would later say in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We should also point out the way that verses 12 and 13 make clear what a true believer is, what a true Christian is. A true Christian is not merely one who affirms certain truths about Jesus and indicates a willingness to follow Jesus by you know, raising your hand at an event or praying a prayer. It's not that those things are bad, but that's not what makes a Christian. Yes, a true Christian believes in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, but also receives him in this personal way. In other words, a true Christian trusts in Jesus to save him and submits to him as Lord. And where does this faith and trust in Jesus comes from? Well, it is concurrent with, it's evidence of the fact that such a person has been born of God. That is, the Holy Spirit has sovereignly brought them from spiritual death to spiritual life. They've been born again of the Spirit. And that means he's not only taken away their guilt, but he's changed their heart in such a way that their lives are transformed. You see, there's no such thing as a Christian biblically defined, whether in John or anywhere else in Scripture, who believes in Jesus but shows no evidence of the Spirit's transformation in their life. Such a person is not a true Christian at all. Such a person needs to receive Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, and you know it is, then I hope that today would be the day that you close with Christ. As we reflect on these different responses to Jesus when he entered the world that John lays out in these verses, how should we respond? Well, on the one hand, it ought to fill us with a reverent wonder to think of the loving condescension of God to enter into his own creation as a man. As Paul, you remember so famously put it in Philippians 2, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
What kind of God is this that's revealed in the scripture? Surely he's nothing like us because we would never consider such a thing. Indeed, for this very reason, many people reject this teaching of scripture. It's impossible because if there is a God, they say, well, it offends our pride to say that he would do such a thing, enter into his own creation as a man. But how it ought to bow us down to think that our creator has united himself to a created human nature so that he might come among us as one of us in order to save us. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And on the other hand, I think how it ought to fill us with a sense of disgrace and revulsion to think of how he was treated by our race when he came. To think that not only did we, humanity, not recognize God when he became a man and dwelt among us, but we rejected him. We accused him of being an evil man, an imposter instead, until finally he was hanging upon a cross, dying the death of a condemned criminal. God on a cross. The creator killed by his creatures. Humanity viciously destroying its only hope of salvation. It should shock and grieve our souls to think of such things. Surely that old hymn writer was right when he said, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? It's true. Oh, too true. How it ought to make us weep and gnash our teeth to think of the infinite folly of our race. How worthy of scorn and condemnation we are. How fitting we are for the fires of hell. But then our hearts are lifted up again to look with tear-filled eyes upon our Savior risen again and realize that this very act of greatest horror When sinful humans, as the book of Acts puts it, killed the author of life, it was that act that God chose to be the very means by which he accomplished our salvation. Because in his death, the holy and righteous one, the God-man, Jesus Christ, delivered us from death by dying for our sins in our place. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as it were, he brought us out of the grave with him when he rose again on the third day. And then to make us former rebels into his children, born of his spirit, into his family, objects of his infinite love and care. Do you see? And now what can we do but take the words of the psalmist on our tongue say, bless the Lord, O my soul, 
and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This story that's told here in John 1, 10 through 13, you see, it captures why we as Christians are to be people marked by joy and gratitude and repent when we are not. Who love to worship God. Who love to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, in conclusion, when Jesus Christ, the true light, entered into this darkened world, it elicited different responses, didn't it? Some were drawn to his light as a source of life. Others hated his light and scurried off to plot his demise. One response leads to righteousness and life, the other to wrath and destruction. There is a sense in which this text should leave us all with a question, shouldn't it? How will you respond to the light? Let's pray together. And as I'm praying, if the men who are going to be serving the Lord's Supper would come up front. Our Father, we thank you for your word. What wonderful truths are in this text that we have studied this morning. We pray that you would seal them upon your, our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We pray that they would have your intended impact upon us. You who know each one of our souls right now in this room. May you work within our hearts by your word in power. And Lord, even now as we turn to take the Lord's Supper together, where we celebrate that incredible act where Jesus, the word who was God, found himself hanging upon the cross by his own will, according to your plan for our salvation. We pray that you would confirm to our hearts once again these truths, that they could have fresh impact upon us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.